0: No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
2: Children of the Night, and welcome to All Hollows Eve. We're releasing the episode a little early this week to commemorate the occasion. It's that most wonderful time of year when the ghosts and ghouls who have been hiding in our closets and under our beds get to come out from the shadows to freely roam the streets and sow fear and chaos. Although, if you're as far north of the equator as I am up here in Canada, The snow boots, big coats, and gloves can sometimes ruin the frightening effect. Not to perpetuate a Canadian stereotype, but yes, it's another white Halloween here in Saskatoon. Growing up, we'd occasionally get a warm Halloween where an extra sweater would do the trick. But as a kid, watching Halloween movies where children ran amok through dry, leaf-strewn streets in nothing but their actual costumes, It seemed hard to believe, almost more fiction than reality. But that wasn't the only thing that straddled the line between Halloween fact and Halloween fiction. There were other tales that heavily colored the trick-or-treats of my youth as well. I remember coming home with my giant haul of candy and dumping it out on the living room floor to eagerly survey my spoils only to have to stand back while my dad sorted through it in search of anything out of place. Objects that didn't belong, resealed packages, or homemade treats. All of them held the potential for danger, I was told. Most of us grew up hearing tales of razor blade apples, random syringes wrapped in candy wrappers, and poisoned popcorn balls that some homicidal weirdo would hand out in a random act of violence. Although the only things my dad ever found were samples of his favorite candies, which he'd casually pocket one or two of. The legend of the poisoned Halloween candy, though, does have a basis in fact, even if the act was much less random than the fear it generated would have you believe. Back in 1974, Eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien came home excited from a night of trick-or-treating with his dad, sister, and some family friends. He'd made a good haul and was eager to dive into his treats. As he sorted through the mountain of wrapped sugar, his hand landed on a brightly colored, thin plastic tube. His dad eagerly encouraged him to try it. It was delicious, he said. So... Tim agreed and quickly tipped the sugary treat into his eager mouth. But he started to feel strange almost immediately. His head began to swim, and he decided to head up to bed. The candy had tasted strange, bitter, and his heart seemed to be beating unnaturally fast as he climbed the stairs. Moments later, he rushed from his bedroom to the bathroom, and began vomiting. The pixie stick he'd downed so eagerly, it turned out, had been laced with cyanide, and Timothy O'Brien died before they could make it to the hospital. Tim's father, Ronald, told investigators that he remembered encountering a shady man at one of the houses they'd visited, a man in a darkened house. Who'd opened the door only a crack, just enough to slip one arm out and deposit five pixie sticks, one into each of the waiting bags? A scramble was made to collect the remaining deadly sweets from the children, and thankfully, all of the candy was recovered before harm could come to anyone else. Although, chillingly, one of the candy tubes was found clutched in the sleeping fist of an eleven-year-old boy whose bag in which it had landed. The staples with which the plastic tube had been resealed were too difficult for him to pull free, and he'd miraculously fallen asleep before he was able to get into it. Ron continued to help police in their search, combing the neighborhood, looking for the strange man responsible. But he remembered very little about the man himself, and not much about the house either. Suddenly, on their third tour through the neighborhood, Ron's story changed. He had an epiphany. Suddenly remembered exactly the house and the man they'd received the candy from. The police arrived, questioned the man, and were quick to discover his innocence. But Ron's sudden and erratic behavior did plenty to arouse the police's suspicion. And if that wasn't enough, the phone call from his insurance agent sure was. Unbeknownst to his wife, Ron had taken out a life insurance policy on both of his children just weeks before Halloween. A little more digging found that he was majorly in debt but had also bragged to a co-worker that his fortunes were about to turn. All of his financial worries were about to become history. He also, not so subtly, quizzed a client of his, a chemist, about the effects of potassium cyanide and where he could obtain it. But the pocket knife found in the home with his fingerprints, plastic particles, and sugary crystals of candy was the final nail in Ron's coffin. The Candyman, a nickname he earned in jail from fellow prisoners, was quickly convicted of poisoning his own child in order to collect the life insurance policy. The jury was not only quick to land the verdict, but his sentencing didn't take much time either. He was sentenced to death and died of lethal injection in 1984 the effects of Ronald O'Brien's murderous Halloween trick were felt far and wide. And despite the threat being localized, fear of poisoned candy caught like wildfire. This one horrific event may have single-handedly changed the face of trick-or-treating from a carefree, candy-fueled romp through autumn streets to a perceived game of sweet Russian roulette. But. There's no evidence that homicidal creeps are out to murder random children on Halloween. As Professor Joel Best, who's studied the phenomenon for 20 years at the University of Delaware, put it, This is a contemporary legend that speaks to our anxiety about kids. Most of us don't believe in ghosts and goblins anymore, but we believe in criminals. It just goes to show... That sometimes the only thing more frightening than evil spirits and bloodthirsty monsters is other human beings. Now, let's scare up some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Colin Hinckley. Colin is an actor and writer living in Brooklyn, New York. His work has appeared in several speculative fiction anthologies, and his nonfiction writing has appeared on the sites Bloody Disgusting and InsidePulse.com. Colin has also performed off-Broadway and in many award-winning short films, including Buy-In, which he co-wrote and starred in. His performance was nominated for Best Actor at the Northern Horror Fest. He is currently working on his first novel. Children of the Night, join me for Colin Hinckley's Ultuza Arrives, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: After six years of waiting, Oswald can feel it coming. The rock he stands on is smooth and slick from ocean waves. To his right, an enormous boulder rises from the water like a stoic, angry god. Mist from a crashing wave drifts past him, clinging droplets sinking into his skin. The sky is black from swollen clouds, and there's a smell that reminds Oswald of stampede. Charged energy moving. He looks out across the water, towards the horizon, and sees the ship. From here, it looks small, no bigger than the distance between the tip and knuckle of his pointer finger. But perspective is wily. He knows it to be several miles long, several miles away. The ocean roils. Oswald feels the woman behind him more than he hears her, a displacement of air so minute it wouldn't disturb a blade of grass but he feels it regardless. Oswald, she says. Mia, he replies and turns. She's standing on his rock, her robe the same deep orange as his, her hood pulled up to hide her long red hair. She stares at him with eyes black as the clouds. It's finally here. Aye, she says, and moves to stand next to him. They gaze together at the floating city of Altusa, the miracle city, as the elders call it, able to withstand any storm, any tsunami, any catastrophe of nature that God could devise. And soon, they too would be Altusians, the blessed, the saved. Oswald looks behind him at the shore. The beach is dead, only the tide of black water lapping at its shore. He can see for a mile, maybe two inland. What was once grassland and trees is not much more than blackened wasteland. A few hovels dotting the landscape like blisters on burnt skin. All told, less than a hundred are left on the island. The rest have been welcomed onto Altulza. Agrega warns of trouble on the horizon. Mia says, Agrega is senile. Oswald says, his voice a razor. What does she know of the floating city? She's never known a day without soil beneath her feet. Aye, Mia agrees. She looks at him sidelong, and the low light reflects in her ink-drop eyes. But she saw the burning. Oswald doesn't respond. He doesn't believe in soothsayers, doesn't believe in second sight or fortune-telling or magic of any kind. If there was magic, the world would have been saved long ago. The only magic is the magic of engineering, of science, the tools used to create Altulza. If there is salvation, this is where it lies. He looks at the horizon and sees the shape has grown larger. Are you frightened? asks Mia. Oswald laughs. Of what? The ocean? Altuza has sailed for a hundred and two years. Were it destined for failure, that failure would have already come to pass. I do not fear living on the ocean. It offers more life than the husk which we live on. He gestures behind him with disdain. God has no power to destroy Altuza. Mia looks over her shoulder and exhales through her nose. Agregor warns not of the power of God, she says. Her voice is quiet, and should be lost to the splitting and roaring sea, but Oswald hears it as if it had been spoken into his ear. Something pulls his eyes back to the horizon, and he sees Autulza has gotten closer. He can almost feel the bubbling mass of the million or so lives all huddled together on the massive ship. They're coming towards him, prepared to welcome him into their paradise. Thunder groans overhead. Of what does Agregor warn, then? If not the power of God, then what? Mia doesn't look at him, but watches Altulza as it sails closer. Not all power comes from above, she says. A flash of red lightning screams across the sky, not far from Altulza. Oswald flinches. He hears Mia inhale sharply. Red lightning, she breathes. Oswald's eyes grow wide. Something stirs in his memory. Aggrega, he says, and turns to look at Mia. Her face is pale. Blood in the storm, she intones. She looks back at Altulza, then jerks and turns. She looks behind her and up at the rock jutting from the sea. Oswald follows her gaze and gasps. Agrega stands atop the rock, her orange robes twisting in the breeze, her white hair flowing wild. Her arms are spread as she shouts across the black, angry water, her voice lost to the wind now howling, the ocean roaring, the sky booming. Mia clutches his arm and points to the sea. Oswald looks to see waves, large waves, rocking Altulza like a tugboat in a child's bath. No he whispers. Behind Altulza, a massive wave begins to swell, two, three, four times the height of the miracle city. Then the water breaks, and lightning ignites the sky, turning the ocean to blood. A hand the size of five Altulza breaches the water, black, rotted, great bones flashing white and red in the storm. The fingers flex as if testing their strength then come down hard on Altulza. Either side of the massive ship points towards the sky as cracking sounds fill Oswald's ears and shake the world with a rending crunch that makes his very bones shudder. The hand vanishes below the water as the two halves of Altulza become vertical then begin to sink. He hears screaming on the wind. As the hand submerges... A wave swells from the black and rises high into the sky. Oswald hears the screamed incantations of Agrega on the rock and the wails of Mia beside him, as the wave hurtles towards them, bodies and wreckage riding the surf of blood, a wall of death. Red lightning flashes again, and behind the wall of water he glimpses a face as large as the moon. It grins with blood-stained teeth.
2: That was Colin Hinckley's. Oltuza Arrives as read by our very own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator and our editor here at Tales to Terrify. He enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama and shares his life with a husband, cat, and dog. Thank you, Seth.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: Fitting into their schedule and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month.
0: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Our second story comes from Robert Jashanek. Robert Jashanek is an award-winning author whose envelope-pushing fiction has made waves around the world. His story, Piggyback, appeared in Tales to Terrify, Episode 361. His stories have also been published in Pulp House, Fiction River, Galaxy's Edge, Tales from the Canyons of the Damned, and many other publications. He has written official Doctor Who and Star Trek fiction, and has written comics for DC Comics, Ahoy Comics, and others. Robert has won an International Book Award, a Scribe Award for Best Original Novel, and the Grand Prize in Pocket Books' Strange New Worlds Contest. Hugo and Nebula Award-winning author Mike Resnick calls him a towering talent. Join Robert's fantastic voyages at robertjashanik.com. You can also find him on Facebook and follow him as at The Fictioneer on Twitter. Listen with me, children of the night, to Robert Jashanik's Trick or Treat in Hell, originally published in Tales from the Canyons of the Damned. Number 28.
4: Shaking, Boyd Willoughby straightened his red flannel shirt, then slowly opened the door of his cozy little apartment. It was his first trick or treat since he'd gone to hell, and he wasn't sure what to expect. Just kids, as it turned out. Two boys and a girl, ages six or seven or so, waited in the front porch light, each costumed and carrying a pillowcase as a treat sack. Boyd blew out a sigh of relief. As far as he could tell, the visitors weren't demons come to terrorize him. Their faces weren't familiar to him either. If he didn't know better, it could have been a scene straight out of Halloween night back home and in Borden, Virginia. Except without all the blood. Trick-or-treat, the kids all shouted it at once. Well, hello, Boyd smiled and tried to sound friendly. Look at you three: a soldier, a cowboy, and a princess. The kids giggled and held out their pillowcase sacks. As Boyd turned to get the big bowl of mini candy bars he had found on the table by the door, he took deep breaths, trying to stay calm, wondering when the other shoe would drop. Because it had to, didn't it? This was hell, after all. The satanic welcoming committee at the twisted security checkpoint had made that clear. "'Take what you like, kiddos!' Boyd shuffled to the door and held out the bowl. For reasons that escaped him, he felt much older and wearier than his actual sixty-three years and pre-death good health might suggest. Maybe it was just the dying literally took it out of him. Happy Halloween! Gingerly, the little princess reached into the bowl. As Boyd watched her hand rooting around in those candy bars, a vision of other hands suddenly appeared before his mind's eye. His hands drenched with glistening crimson blood. He shuddered with horror and revulsion. Somehow he knew it was a memory, a moment in time he'd experienced, though he couldn't remember exactly how or why. All he knew for sure was that he'd experienced that moment on Halloween night, a non-specific Halloween night, in an unknown year, back on Earth before departing for Hell. Then it was gone. The only hand he was watching was the little girl's as it pulled a candy bar and a dark brown wrapper from the bowl. Thank you, mister. She dropped it in her pillowcase, waved, and turned to go. The kid cowboy grabbed a bar and a red wrapper, and the soldier snagged a yellow-wrapped one. Both boys thanked Boyd politely as they followed the girl off the porch. Have a wonderful night, children, he told them. Standing in the doorway, Boyd waved until they were out of sight down the street. Then, glancing around to make sure no one was looking, he closed the door hard and leaned back against it, shivering. Since arriving in hell that day, the only punishment he'd gotten was the slight hassle at the security checkpoint. Otherwise, no demons had jabbed him with pitchforks, or flayed the skin from his bones, or cooked him alive but the torture had to come sometime, surely. His memories of life on Earth were foggy, but the visions he had of his hands covered in blood on Halloween night were not. He actually found himself wishing that whoever was in charge of hell would just get it over with. He was dead, but the suspense was killing him. Yelping in surprise, Boyd sprang away from the door when the knock came. Then he quickly regained his composure and went for the bowl of candy bars again. "'Trick-or-treat!' hollered the kids when he chucked the door open. Instantly he recognized them as the first three kids, but older. Instead of six or seven years old, they were ten or eleven. They all wore different costumes than before, too. The blonde boy was dressed like Davy Crockett, the red-headed boy was a fireman, and the girl was dressed as a doctor." complete with scrubs and prop stethoscope. They all smiled and were as friendly as before, holding out their pillowcases with no trace of hellish hostility. It just made Boyd all the more apprehensive. Well, don't you all look wonderful? He pushed the bowl of candy bars forward and gave it a shake. Help yourselves, children. The kids were as polite as before, each taking a single candy bar and thanking him. But Boyd couldn't stop looking at their faces and wondering. Did he know them from his life on earth? Had he done something to them? And why were they getting older so fast? You were here before, he said, just a few minutes ago. The kids looked at each other and shrugged. I think it might just seem that way, said the fireman. Sure, said Davy Crockett. That was a while ago. We were just little then. You live in the neighborhood, I suppose? Boyd returned the candy bar bowl to its spot on the table by the door and wiped his sweaty hands on his blue jeans. I live two streets over, said the fireman, on Anderson. My street is Martin, said Davy Crockett. And my family lives on Tallman, said the girl. I see, Boyd frowned, trying to put the pieces together. "'And what did you say your names are?' "'Caleb,' said the red-headed fireman. "'Tammy,' said the girl. "'Austin,' said the blonde Davy Crockett. "'None of the names rang a bell. "'The significance of the kids' identities, if any, "'continued to elude Boyd. "'Well, I hope you have a fun night,' he managed a weak smile. "'Everything was so normal!' like something out of the world before his death, as much of it as he could remember, which wasn't much. There he was in his cozy apartment, the scene of his solitary life except on Halloween. All of it was so perfectly recreated, so achingly normal. That in itself made him nervous, because he had a feeling it shouldn't have been that way in hell. "'Where were the flying demons with the flaming red skin and big bat wings?' Where were the piles of entrails rotting in the blistering heat? For that matter, where was the blistering heat? It felt as cool as a Virginia Halloween night in that apartment. Bye, kids, he said as the three trick-or-treaters wandered off into the night. Stay safe. Happy Halloween. He threw the door shut, but didn't lean against it this time. Instead, he crossed the apartment and sat on the edge of the brown leather sofa. It was overstuffed and extremely comfortable. What kind of hell was this? Combing his fingers through his thin gray hair, he looked around the living room with terror in his eyes. He kept expecting a smoking fissure to open up on the floor and a hellish denizen to crawl out of it. Or the TV to grow a jagged, fanged maw and snap at him like an alligator or the walls and ceiling to wail and weep blood, oozing and dripping from hideous open sores. Instead, he just saw the same neat, tidy space. Orange and gold autumn flowers were arranged in a vase on the coffee table, a red apple-scented candle glowed on the end table, and smooth jazz played softly on the stereo. It couldn't have been a nicer place. So why was it in hell? To lull him? To give him a false sense of security before the horrors began? Or was it all because of something much worse? (sniffs) Boyd stared at the door and wondered who or what was on the other side this time. If he didn't answer it, could he avoid having things turn terrible? On the other hand, if it was some fiend finally come to flip his script, at least the waiting would be over. The feeling of constant dread would be gone. Swallowing hard, he got up from the sofa and walked to the door. He reached for the knob, then stopped as the nightmarish vision returned. Once again he saw his hands before him, drenched and dripping with blood, the crimson color of it so vivid it could have been happening in the moment instead of flickering before his mind's eye. The vision lingered for a moment, transfixing him, then faded, when a sudden noise broke the spell. Shaking his head to clear it, Boyd grabbed hold of the knob. He held on to it for a moment, steeling himself for whatever he might find, and then he pulled it open. Trick or treat! Again he recognized the three kids, and again they were older than the time before. At a glance he guessed they were all in their early teens, noticeably taller and more mature. Ah, hello again! Boyd reached for the bowl of mini candy bars. How wonderful to see you! It's great to see you, too, sir, said red-headed Caleb, who was dressed as a football player. You are so nice to us, said Tammy, who wore a superhero costume complete with glittering red tights and a gold tiara. I always say you make us feel like we should be giving you treats instead of the other way around. Thank you, Boyd caught himself blushing. It means so much to hear you say that. As he'd done twice before, he held out the bowl, and the kids each took one candy bar apiece. Hey, Mr. W., said Blonde Austin, who was dressed as an astronaut. Are you all right? Your hands are shaking. The fear and paranoia were getting the better of Boyd. I'm fine. I'm fine. Smiling, he plunked the bowl on the table. Are you nervous? Tammy looked worried. Do you need help? Not at all. Boyd chuckled and waved off her concern. Just a little chilly, I suppose. Caleb crossed the threshold and took a step toward him. "'Are you sure you're not scared?' He raised his voice and lunged at Boyd on the last word. Adrenaline blazed through Boyd's arteries and he jumped. "'Now I am!' he said, and everyone laughed. "'Well, don't be!' Tammy reached into her pillowcase and pulled out a peanut butter cup and an orange wrapper. "'You're perfectly safe. "'You don't have anything to worry about.' "'Smiling, she held out the peanut butter cup. "'Boyd accepted the candy. "'You don't think so?' "'Relax, Mr. W.' "'Tammy gave him a thumbs-up. "'You're a good person, and all is right with the world.' "'Thank you,' said Boyd, as they bounded off into the night, "'waving exuberantly. "'You're good people, too.' He stood for a moment in the doorway, expecting the worst to finally erupt. After what Tammy had said, could there be a more perfect moment for all hell to break loose on him? Closing his eyes, he took a deep breath of the cool night air. If it was time for him to pay for what he'd done, whatever it was, so be it. At least the waiting would be over. Not again, Boyd went for the candy bar bowl. He stumbled to the front door and whipped it open. Trick-or-treat! Three familiar faces grinned back at him. The same trick-or-treaters as before, but older teenagers now. All of them looked around fifteen or sixteen years old. Taller and leaner and more mature. Though they'd only been gone a few minutes as Boyd reckoned time. Was that what was happening here? Did time work differently in hell than it did on earth? Or was there something more sinister at large in the Halloween night wind? Here, he held out the bowl of candy. Take what you like. Thank you, sir. Austin was dressed like a hippie, complete with tie-dyed shirt, fringed buckskin vest, and bell-bottom jeans. I guess you were safe the last time we were here, after all, weren't you? I guess so, said Boyd. You didn't need to be scared at all. Tammy wore a cute clown outfit, complete with floppy red shoes and a red rubber nose. We told you so, Mr. W. Yes, you did. Boyd was getting impatient. I appreciate your advice. Any time, said red-headed Caleb, who was clad in a Hells Angels motorcycle outlaw getup. We like helping good people like you. It's not like you're dangerous or something, said Austin. It's not like you're going to kill us. "'said Tammy, and then she chuckled. "'Boyd felt a chill and had another vision of his blood-soaked hands. "'It disappeared as quickly as it had come. "'What do you mean?' "'Nothing, really,' said Tammy. "'It was just a joke.' "'Was it?' "'If you want to tell me something, you can just come right out with it, you know,' said Boyd. "'What about you?' Caleb cocked his head and narrowed his eyes. Is there something you want to tell us? As a matter of fact, yes. There's something I want to ask you, Boyd frowned. Do I know you from before? From somewhere other than this place? Austin shrugged. Maybe you saw us around the neighborhood. Or in church, said Tammy. Boyd shook his head slowly, staring from one of the teens to the other. The more I see you, the more familiar you look to me, but I can't put my finger on why. Caleb cleared his throat and grinned. Maybe you're better off not knowing where you know us from, Boyd scowled. And why would that be? What if we remind you of something you'd rather forget, said Caleb, something you've blocked out of your memory, and all it needs is one little push. He jumped through the doorway and snapped his fingers in Boyd's face. Then he threw an arm around Boyd's shoulders and laughed. Just kidding! Are you? Boyd put down the candy bar bowl. If there's something I've forgotten, you can tell me. I promise I won't be angry. There's nothing, Caleb gave Boyd's shoulders a squeeze and unwrapped his arm from around them. Nothing you need to know. "'If there's anything that might help explain what's going on here, please tell me.' Boyd got another flash of his blood-soaked hands and backed away from the kids. "'I don't know how much of this I can take.' "'It's trick-or-treat on Halloween,' said Austin. "'What's not to take?' "'You're not going to tell me, are you?' Boyd almost knocked over a floor lamp as he continued to back away. "'But you know, don't you?' "'Mr. W., are you all right?' Tammy entered the apartment, looking concerned. Can I get you a glass of water, maybe? Just leave, said Boyd. Take your candy and leave. We didn't mean to upset you, said Caleb. I'm not upset. Boyd motioned at the door. Just go, all right? Please. I need some rest. Tammy looked more concerned than ever. But maybe you shouldn't be alone, Mr. W. I'll be fine. I need to figure this out. Boyd advanced on the kids, making shooing gestures. I'm turning off my porch light and lying down now. That's okay, said Caleb on his way out. We won't bother you for a while, sir. Yup, Austin waved from the doorway. At least until next Halloween, sir. Turning, he followed Caleb across the porch. Tammy was close behind. I hope you feel better she told Boyd, and then she was back out there, marching off into the night. And Boyd was slamming the front door shut behind them and switching off the porch light with a smack of his hand. Shaking, he crossed the apartment and collapsed on the sofa. As soon as he closed his eyes, another vision of his bloody hands appeared before him, and more. He saw blood on the apartment walls, carpet, and furniture, crimson remnants of some incredibly violent and unknown act. Whatever he'd done to make that mess, why couldn't he remember it? Why did he only see flashes of it? For that matter, how had he managed to make that bloodshed happen at all? What had driven him to commit such carnage? What if it was something to do with those trick-or-treating kids? Was that why they seemed so familiar? Was it why they kept coming back? because he'd hurt them or worse when they'd all still been alive on Earth? (coughs) Boyd's eyes shot open. Even as he got a sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach, maybe if he didn't answer the door, they would just go away. (coughs) Or maybe ignoring it just made it louder. (coughs) Was this the punishment he was going to face for the violent act he saw in his visions? "'Eternal knocking and intrusions by murdered trick-or-treaters?' "'He thought he'd almost rather be tortured by demons with pitchforks. "'With a grunt, he rolled off the sofa and shuffled to the door. "'He noticed the porch light switch was in the off position where he'd left it, "'meaning no trick-or-treaters should have been knocking at that point. "'Boyd's apartment should have been clearly marked as closed for business. "'But maybe the rules were different in hell.' Boyd took a deep breath and opened the door. The same three kids were waiting, young adults of eighteen or nineteen by now. "'Trick-or-treat!' "'Enough!' said Boyd. "'Enough with the charade!' Austin, dressed as a cop, looked at him as if he were nuts. "'But we're not playing charades, Mr. W.' "'That's not what I meant, and you know it,' said Boyd. "'We are literally trick-or-treating!' Red headed Caleb, costumed as a pirate, shook his pillowcase. Candy wrappers crinkled inside. Our matey! Delicious candy! Tis our only mission! At your age? snapped Boyd. Austin shrugged. I guess we're still just kids at heart. We love Halloween! I'm not stupid. Boyd was getting annoyed. I can tell there's more going on here than that. I can tell. "'Take a deep breath, Mr. W.' "'Tammy, dressed like an angel this time, "'crossed the threshold and took him by the elbow. "'Let's get you to the couch over there.' "'Boyd shook her off. "'At the hint of unfriendliness, "'the boys pushed through the doorway "'and took up positions on either side of her. "'Listen to me. Listen!' "'Boyd held up his hands, palms out, in front of him. "'I'm sorry. Whatever I did to you, I'm sorry.' Tammy smiled sadly and shook her head. "'You don't need to apologize for anything, Mr. W.' "'You didn't do anything to us,' said Caleb. "'I promise.' "'But I must have,' Boyd's hands trembled. "'You keep coming back here.' "'To trick-or-treat,' said Austin. "'You always have the best candy.' "'Deny it all you want,' said Boyd. "'It won't stop me from saying I'm sorry.' Okay, fine, you're sorry, Austin pointed at the candy bar bowl. Now can we finally have our treats? Does this mean you accept it? asked Boyd. You accept my apology? We don't even know what it's for, said Caleb. Mr. W., Tammy stepped closer. Is there some other reason you think you did something to us other than the fact that we keep coming back here for trick-or-treat? Boyd hesitated. I've had visions, his heart raced as he continued. Visions of something terrible I've done. Tammy cleared her throat. And the boys and I are in these visions of years? He shook his head. I haven't seen you there. She clapped her hands together. Then there's no need to apologize to us. But I don't always remember all the details, said Boyd. Just the flashes and feelings. He lowered his hands and frowned and I'm starting to get the feeling that you three are part of whatever it is I've done. "'Are you trying to spook us, Mr. W?' Caleb sounded amused. "'Because that's kind of a creepy story, if you ask me.' "'Whatever I've done, I just want to be forgiven.' Boyd met the gaze of each trick-or-treater in turn. "'I just want the waiting to end.' "'Waiting?' said Austin. "'Waiting for what?' Payback, punishment, Boyd winced. Whatever you're going to do to me? You've only ever been nice to us, Mr. W., said Tammy. Why would we do anything to you? Suddenly Boyd had had enough. I don't know. Maybe I deserve it. But I'm begging you to forgive me. Or at least get it over with. No offense, Mr. W., said Caleb. But I'm starting to think maybe you need help. "'Please!' Tammy moved closer and reached for Boyd's shoulder. "'You need to calm down.' "'Boyd shook her off and stormed to the far side of the room, "'stumbling over the coffee table. "'Did it happen on Halloween? "'Is that why it's always Halloween night "'and you're always trick-or-treating?' "'You're not making sense,' said Tammy. "'Whatever you think happened to us, "'it's all in your imagination.' Suddenly, Boyd grabbed a ceramic statuette of a jack-o'-lantern from an end-table and hurled it against the wall, smashing it to orange-colored bits. All eyes locked on him as he stood there, shaking and flushed. Tears rolled down his cheeks, and he swiped them away. "'I just want to know,' his voice was half a whimper. "'I want to remember. I want to be forgiven, or condemned, or something.' AND I WANT THIS NIGHT TO BE OVER. I WANT TO BE DONE WITH HALLOWEEN. AGAIN, TAMMY STARTED TOWARD HIM, BUT Caleb CAUGHT HER BY THE ARM AND SHOOK HIS HEAD. LET'S GO. COME ON, AGREED AUSTIN. I THINK HE NEEDS SOME TIME TO HIMSELF. TAMMY LOOKED LIKE SHE WAS WRESTLING WITH HER CONSCIENCE. THEN SHE NODDED. WE'RE GOING NOW, MR. W. SHE MOVED SLOWLY TOWARD THE DOOR. "'Will you be all right on your own?' "'When he didn't answer, she just nodded. "'Well, take all the time you need to sort this out, okay?' "'Again, he didn't answer. "'All the time you need,' said Tammy. "'We'll make sure you get it.' "'Then she followed the others out of the apartment "'and shut the door behind her. "'As the latch clicked, Boyd let out a deep sigh of relief.' At last he was alone with his thoughts. Maybe he could finally sort things out and get to the truth about his visions. Or not. Suddenly the door burst in, without a knock. Trick or treat! The three just left crowded back into the apartment. This time each of them had to be at least in his or her mid-twenties, and none of them wore costumes. Unless you counted ratty t-shirts, filthy blue jeans, "'and track marks all up and down their pale arms, that is.' "'Mr. W!' Caleb's eyes were glazed as he stumbled across the room. "'What do you got for us?' "'Yeah!' hollered Austin. "'Give us something good, bro!' "'Confused, Boyd froze. "'Dude looks trashed!' Caleb roared with laughter. "'He's all like WTF!' "'Hilarious!' said Austin." With that, Tammy lurched forward. You ought to be happy, old man. You said you wanted to remember. Now that's exactly what you're going to do. Every warning signal in Boyd's brain was going off at once. A wave of recognition washed over him, but he still couldn't figure out exactly what it all meant. We came to see you on Halloween night, remember, back in the world. "'Tammy's blue eyes sparked within the sooty black raccoon circles smeared around them. "'Just like this!' "'Boyd winced and shook his head. "'We really needed a treat,' said Tammy. "'A very special treat!' Caleb, still laughing, "'pretended to shoot his left forearm with a syringe. "'To get it, we needed cash,' continued Tammy. "'Fast!' which, of course, we figured an old dude like you would have loads of tucked away, said Austin, so we asked you very nicely to hand it over. Tammy snorted and scratched her left armpit. Do you remember what happened after that, Mr. W.? Does any of this ring a bell? Boyd shook his head, shivering. You held out on us, snapped Caleb. You said you only had a few bucks in the apartment. Total bullshit chimed in Austin. Old guys always have piles of cash in their walls and mattresses and shit. Then what happened? Asked Tammy. Finish the story, Mr. W. I don't know, Boyd snapped in frustration. Did I do something to hurt you? That again? Caleb laughed. I swear you can be such a moron, Mr. W. I don't know what you're talking about said Boyd, but whatever you think I did to you, I apologize. Like I told you before, said Tammy, no apologies are necessary. You didn't do anything to us. Other than hold out on us when we totally needed to score, said Austin. Then what, stammered Boyd, then why? It's not what you did to us, Tammy's eyes widened as she reached behind her. "'It's what we did to you.' "'With that, she jerked a semi-automatic handgun out of her waistband "'and swung it around, pointing the barrel directly at Boyd. "'Now do you remember?' she asked, "'as she pulled the trigger, unleashing the thunderous blast of a gunshot. "'A round slammed into Boyd's gut, and he crashed to the floor, "'searing pain burned through him, blinding him as he clutched at the wound.' Seconds later, his sight flared back to him. Instinctively, he looked down where the bullet had struck and saw his hands there soaked in blood. Gasping against the pain, he looked around, saw the blood all over the carpet and walls and furniture. It was everywhere, just like in his vision. His blood, not theirs. I did... "'Didn't hurt you after all!' Boyd hissed the words between clenched teeth. "'What was your first clue?' sneering. Tammy blew a wisp of smoke from the gun barrel. "'He's pretty quick on the uptake, isn't he?' Caleb laughed. "'But I thought I was in hell for what I'd done to you,' said Boyd. "'You got it all wrong, you moron,' said Austin." Boyd clutched at his ruined gut, but couldn't stop the blood from bubbling out of him. Then I'm not being punished? It's more like we're being rewarded, Tammy grinned and handed the gun to Caleb. Don't believe what they told you in Sunday school. Hell is like heaven for sinners. The worse you are, the better you're treated. And the three of us turned into some first-class sinners, thanks to the heroine. Caleb aimed the gun at Boyd and curled his finger around the trigger. So we get to relive our favorite moment as much as we want. Why am I in hell if you're the ones who killed me? Boyd gasped and glared at his attackers, wishing he could get up from the floor and lash out at them. Doesn't make sense. How should we know? Tammy shrugged. "'Maybe you were secretly a perv,' Austin giggled like a lunatic. "'But you won't see us complaining. We're tickled pink that you're here.' "'Got that right,' Caleb sneered. "'I could keep this shit up forever.' He pulled the trigger then, unloading a round in Boyd's chest. Again, Boyd was racked with blinding pain. "'We practically have kept it up forever,' said Austin." We've been at this so long, we can't remember when we started. You don't remember how long it's been, do you, Mr. W.? Tammy crouched beside him and reached down to pat his head. Every time we start the game over, it's like the first day in hell for you. Boyd wanted to scream at her. At all of them. But he couldn't force enough breath into his blown-apart chest to get the words out. You poor thing. Tammy stroked his bloody, sweat-soaked hair. I guess the only way you can stand going through this again and again is to block out the memories. Though apparently those darn visions keep reminding you, don't they? Boyd choked as his throat filled with blood. He felt darkness closing in, familiar and inexorable, laced with anger at his unjust fate, regret for what the trick-or-treaters had become and relief for the terrible things He now knew he hadn't done. Maybe this time, he thought, Halloween night would finally be over for good. Maybe he would be over for good. Relaxing into the darkness, he dared to hope that it would claim him forever, that there would be some justice to the universe, and fate would finally be kind to the murder victim instead of the murderers. Then his eyes fluttered open and darkness was replaced by the sight of a cozy apartment. Sitting up, he saw no blood on his hands or anywhere else. The mini candy bar bowl on the table by the door was full. It was Halloween night, his first day in hell. Hands shaking, he got up to answer the door.
2: That was Robert Jashanik's Trick or Treat in Hell, as read by Dan Gersinski. Dan lives in Tully, New York, near Syracuse, and earns his living bending the unseen forces of nature to his will as a broadcast engineer. He's been a recording engineer, electronics technician, repairer of broken things, and regularly reads for LibriVox. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at tales to and if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help keep us on the charts and allow us to seep into the ears of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Join us again next week as we scare up fresh treats with more Tales to Terrify.